But I turned uh, 34 on Monday. In my, <laughs> that doesn't make me wise. 34 years doesn't necessarily make me wise, but I'm also not young and naive anymore either, right? Uh, but in my 34 years of life on this earth, with nearly 10 of those being a pastor, um, I don't have it all figured out, but I've come to be certain of at least two things that are true, I believe, of every single person in this room and every single person that walks the streets of New York. And that is one, that everyone has a struggle. Everyone has a struggle. And two, that everyone was created to worship. Everyone has a struggle and everyone was created to worship. And unfortunately, however, in our lives, it's often our struggles that influence how and what we worship. Or it's often our struggles that hinder us from worshiping fully. And if we want to worship, and I hope this is what you want this morning, if you're here, if you want to worship God with your life, if you want to know God, experience God, enjoy God to the fullest, if we want to experience what Jesus calls the abundant life, we must first learn what it means to be free. And it mean, what we must first learn is what it means to be free from the weight of our struggles so that we can be free to worship. And today we're beginning a new study on the book of Exodus. But Exodus, at its core, is a book about freedom. It's a book about freedom from slavery, and I believe it's a book for us about freedom from our struggles. It is a story that tells the power of God to redeem us from the things that enslave us, the things that torment us, inflict pain on us, whether that is addiction, depression, abuse, sickness, loss, fear, suffering, poverty, broken dreams, unmet expectations, unfulfilled desires, whatever it is in your life that is the struggle that you carry, the story of Exodus tells us that we don't have to be a slave to our struggles. The story of Exodus tells us that we do not have to be defined by our struggle and by our suffering, but rather that we can be free from it. But Exodus is not just a story about suffering and freedom from slavery. It's a story about worship, about how to worship God. God gives us freedom, and we see that in the Exodus story. The Israelites are free from slavery in Egypt, but free for what? What is freedom for? I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen, the, or some of you who, anybody who's probably older than me, have seen the uh, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments. Anybody younger than me has probably seen Prince of Egypt, the cartoon. What does Moses say to Pharaoh? Let my, what else? There's more. What Moses says to Pharaoh is let my people go so that they may worship God. And that is, that is the fulcrum point for understanding Exodus. Freedom from slavery so that we can worship God fully. Let my people go that they may worship me. And Exodus, show, the story shows us that true freedom, the kind of freedom that brings life, is to not only be free from our struggle and our slavery, but it's to know, worship, and obey the very the living God who redeems us. So everyone has a struggle. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but everyone in this room has a struggle. Some are big, some are small, but the struggles are real. Everyone has a struggle, but everyone was created to worship. 
And Exodus shows us how we can find freedom from our struggle so that we can be free to worship. Now, what could be more practical? You know? What could be more practical than the book of Exodus? How can we be free from our suffering so that we can be free to worship? And the Exodus story, it begins in slavery, but it ends in worship. And that is my prayer for all of our lives. That God would call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That he would call us out of slavery to whatever it is that enslaves us so that we could be free to worship him. Now, let's begin Exodus. We begin in chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I'll stop right there. Some background on Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Does anybody know what the first book of the Bible is? Genesis, which means beginning. And the story of Genesis ends with the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph, to make a long story very, very short, Joseph was not an Egyptian, but through a series of incredible circumstances, he found himself in Egypt, and with, he found himself with great power and great influence. And through that influence, Joseph was able to save his family and all of Egypt from famine. So Joseph was a hero. Even though he wasn't an Egyptian, he was a hero in Egypt. And his family, after Joseph sort of saved everybody from famine, his family moves into Egypt. The scriptures say there were 70 of them. This is extended family. And they moved into Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, they, had, they were respected. They, but, and they, they, were, they, there was, they were honored while they were there. But they also began to multiply. They grew by the hundreds, then by the thousands, and then by the tens of thousands. And in Egypt, they became known as the Israelites, meaning the people of Israel, or the Hebrews. And they enjoyed relative peace in Egypt for centuries. And the book of Exodus picks up 400 years after the Genesis story. And it begins by telling us now that there's a new king, but this king does not know Joseph. Now, this king's not ignorant. He knows who Joseph is. When it says he does not know Joseph, what that means is he no longer respects Joseph and the contribution that the Hebrew people made to the culture of Israel and that, they were, that Joseph was responsible for saving Egypt at a point in time. And so he no longer honors Joseph, therefore he no longer respects and honors the Israelites living in Egypt. And look what it says, verse 9. And Pharaoh said to his people, the king said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, there's too many of them, and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly. That's a political word. Let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they might join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now pay attention to what's happening here. The king sees an ethnic minority growing in number within his kingdom, and he becomes afraid. He's afraid that this growing ethnic minority might become the majority, or they might become unified and begin leveraging influence within the kingdom. They might change the culture. They might bring their Hebrew ways and, and change the culture, or they could revolt. And he could lose power. They could join his enemies and he could lose the throne. And so he begins a political strategy to minimize their influence, diminish their humanity, and stop their growth. And what he does is he convinces the rest of Egypt that the downfall of Egyptian culture would happen if the Israelites continued to grow and thrive in their land. And what he does, he stokes the fears of the majority to cultivate prejudice against the minority. This is fear-based politics rooted in racism. Aren't you glad this doesn't happen anymore? 
I was in Chicago last week, and I took a boat tour of the city. Like, I did the thing that I make fun of people for doing in New York, I did while I was a tourist in another city. But I took a boat tour of the city, and the tour guide was telling us uh, about the great Chicago fire of 1871. And I, you know, maybe you've heard of how the fire started. You know, I was always told that the fire started by Miss O'Leary's cow. You guys heard this story? Miss O'Leary was a woman. She was out milking her cow one night. Her cow got angry, kicked his back legs, and kicked over a lantern. It fell into the barn, set the barn on fire, and it spread all over Chicago and burned all of Chicago to the ground. Well, our tour guide said, well, the thing is, that's not what happened. It wasn't Miss O'Leary's cow. We don't know what caused the Chicago fire. But that story was made up by Catherine O'Leary's neighbor. Now, why would she make that story up? Because they wanted to blame it on somebody, and Miss O'Leary was Irish. And at that time, Irish immigrants in America were looked at with suspicion and with great prejudice. And by blaming the Chicago fire on an Irish woman, the Chicagoans were able to direct their anger and their frustration toward a people group. And that gave them permission in their minds to dehumanize their neighbors, to blame all their problems on a minority group, and then use that to justify their prejudice in a time of turmoil. See, there is nothing new under the sun, is there? This is what Pharaoh's doing here. There's all these problems in Egypt at the moment, and instead of taking responsibility for them, he blames them on the Israelites. He stokes the fears of all his people into hating the Israelites. He fears that they're growing. He fears he wants to keep them under control. So what does he do? Verse 11 tells us, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They ruthlessly made them work. As slaves. Pharaoh begins blaming the nation's problems on the Israelites. He then begins, he moves on to dehumanizing them and making them slaves. But you can't keep the Israelites down. They just keep multiplying. And so Pharaoh gets, he's like, we, we're doing slavery. We're, I mean, putting them to work. We're being ruthless with them, but they keep multiplying. What do we do to keep them from growing? And Pharaoh doubles down on his hatred of the Israelites. It says, verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the women who delivered the babies, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. And he told them, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she may live. So Pharaoh is now demanding infanticide of all the male children born, born in Israel. Do you see how hatred just grows and grows and grows and grows? But look at what it says in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male, ch male children live. I love these women. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male ch children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Well, these Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. 
for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife even comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because, listen to this, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now these incredibly brave women resisted. They resisted a tyrant king in a moment of great political turmoil. Do you realize how brave this was for these women? I mean, they were putting their lives on the line. And what you, from Exodus all the way up to the civil rights movement, and every revolution always begins with a defiant no. Someone who stands up and says, I will not take part of that which is unjust. I think of Rosa Parks saying, no, not going to give up my seat. I think of the unnamed tank man with the shopping bags in hand who stood in front of a military tank in Tiananmen Square and said, no way, not anymore. Shifra and Pua in this story, these were brave, bold women who feared God more than a tyrant king, even a king that could kill them. They feared God more. And they were willing to put their lives on the line for the innocent and the vulnerable children whose lives were at risk. And verse 20 says that God dealt well with these women. And there is a theme that runs all through scriptures and there is a promise that God makes that runs, I believe, to this very day. And that is that God hates injustice and he will reward those who stand up for the vulnerable. That is the heart of God. But Pharaoh, this frustrates him even more, the boldness of these women. And his reign of terror gets even worse. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. I mean, he commands all of Egypt. I mean, he gives civilians permission to carry these commands out. He says, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. See, at this point, the evil in Pharaoh's heart has run its full course. And what began as fear and racism has now led to full-on government-sanctioned genocide. So that's the situation the Israelites find themselves in. That's the background of Exodus. That's where it starts. God's chosen people in this predicament. And I want to stop here for a moment in just a teaching moment. When we read the Scriptures, we should always be reading the Scriptures as part of a conversation with God. This is God's word to us. And so it's part of a conversation we have with him. And when you're reading for the scriptures, you ought to be looking for opportunities to pray. And when you read the scriptures and it come, you come to a passage like this, it, that it, there's injustice, there's genocide, there's infanticide, it ought to cause you to pause for a moment and ask, what is this passage that I'm reading prompting me to pray right now? And when we read of slavery and oppression and genocide, it ought to motivate us to pray for the oppressed today. Those like the Israelites who today are in fear for their lives, wondering where God is. You know that today there are an estimated 21 to 46 million slaves today. There are more slaves right now than at any point in human history. Many of those are young boys and girls that are being prostituted. Many Christians in Iraq, Syria, Sri Lanka, North Korea, Sudan are facing genocide today. And so what I want to do is just right now, this moment, I want us to pause and I want us to pray for those who are experiencing oppression right now and are experiencing something very similar to what the Israelites felt. So would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Father in heaven, like the Israelites in Egypt, there are many people in our world today who face prejudice, oppression, and persecution. 
God, we ask today that you be with them. Comfort them, strengthen them, rescue them. Do not hide your face from them. While they may be so utterly burdened beyond their strength, perhaps even despairing of life itself, help them not to rely on themselves, but on the God who raises the dead. God, give them strength and comfort and peace this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to pick up chapter 2, verse 1. This is where the story starts to, you start to see a turn. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in the basket and placed it among the reeds by the, reeds by the riverbank. As, and, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So here's what's happening. There's a little baby, a Hebrew child. His mother and his sister are so concerned with what's going to happen to him. But they know that in this king's kingdom... In Pharaoh's kingdom, they can't provide or protect for this child. And they know that if if they try to hold on to this child any longer, the child will be killed. So they entrust this child into God's hands and they place him in a basket. The word is actually the same word used for ark from Noah. They place him in a basket and they send him down the river, praying and hoping that God will somehow rescue that child and give him a life. And now I want to stop again for a moment. We're going to pray again. But I want us to consider Moses' biological mother and his biological sister. Because it's so evident in this story that they love this little child. But in their circumstances, they know that they cannot care for this boy the way that they want. They can't protect him. They can't provide for him. And if they try to hold on to him any longer, they know he will die. So they place this little boy in God's hands, put him in a basket, send him down the river with the prayer that someone will rescue him and be able to care for him where they cannot. And what I love is in Hebrews 11, there's a chapter of the Bible called what's called the Hall of Faith. And it's basically just a it's like just a chapter of like the like the most the people who demonstrated the most faith in all the Bible. And it's got all the regular characters you would think to see. Abraham, Noah, Sarah, Isaac, Joseph, even Moses. But in 11, Hebrews 11:23, 11, Moses' biological parents, his biological mother, is listed as one of the great heroes of the faith. And I don't want us to forget that. It says, Hebrews eleven twenty three. Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And Moses' biological mother, who essentially gave her son up for adoption, is commended for her faith, for her act of love. And my wife, many of you know, is a social worker. And she counsels birth mothers who are placing their children up for adoption. And in most cases, these women love their children. But they know that they cannot provide for their child. So in faith, they place their child up for adoption with hopes that another couple can provide and protect for their child in ways that they cannot. Think about what faith that takes for these biological mothers, these birth mothers. That's faith, that is bravery, that's courage. And I can only imagine how painful that is. My oldest son was adopted. And my wife and I, we think of his birth mother often. 
on his birthday, when he goes to school, first day of school, we think of his birth mother. She made a difficult decision in difficult circumstances. And I pray and I hope that Rebecca and I can honor her in the way that we raise her son. And I do believe and I do hope that God will reward her and women like her because these women need our prayers. And so again, we're going to pause and we're going to pray, but I'm going to ask my wife to come up and pray for women who are wrestling with difficult decisions in these difficult circumstances. So, would you? Father, today I want to honor the women who are in a vulnerable and difficult situation as they're making the decision of what to do with their children, whether it be an adoption plan or not. I pray that you would give them strength and wisdom and a lot of grace. I pray for the families that step up and take care of these children that were not born to them biologically, but that came to them through foster care or adoption. I pray that more Christian families, especially families here at Crossroads, would step up in the gap for these children. I pray that you will give them loving and stable homes. And may your grace be sufficient and your provision be evident for the way that these birth mothers and adoptive families are cared for. We know that adoption is not an easy decision, but we have seen through biblical history how you have redeemed these stories. And we pray that you will continue to write redemptive stories for these children and these birth mothers. I pray that you give lasting peace and opportunities for these birth mothers who are making these choices and sacrifices. In your name, amen. Now, I imagine that's a prayer that Moses' mother prayed. And his sister obviously prayed it because she's following him down the river trying to find out what happened to this little boy. And look at what happens. We see in chapter 2 that God answered their prayer. Verse 5 says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her, young, while her young women walked beside the river, she saw a basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away. And nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, that is our text for today. The story has been building. We know the background of the Israelites. Now the story has been building. You're like, where is God? And now we see, you know, the story of Moses his name isn't mentioned till the very end, but for those of us who know who Moses is, we know that he's the deliverer. And now we're introduced at the very end of this text to the very one who will deliver God's people from slavery. And there's one point sermon that I want to give this morning, and that's this. When it seems God is hidden, he is near. When it seems like God is hiding himself from you, you need to trust and know that he is near you in those moments. Can you imagine what it, would like to, what it was like to be an Israelite in Egypt during this time? You're a descendant of Abraham. 
God said you were his chosen people. You were once respected in this land. You were a descendant from Joseph, a hero who saved Egypt. But the times have changed. King is now blaming your people for the problems in the country. Your neighbors now look on you with suspicion. You've been dehumanized. You're a slave. And your children are being murdered. And you might be thinking, so we're God's chosen people? Well, then where is he? And if you've read, if you've read, sort of, if you've paid attention, you know that God's name hasn't even been mentioned in this story yet. God's name has not been mentioned, and I think that's on purpose. I think the author, who's Moses, reflecting back on this, he wants us to feel what the Israelites felt, and that is, God, where are you? Where are you? And how many of you felt this way? Have you ever felt this way? God, where are you? When things aren't going well, when you feel overwhelmed by your struggle or your pain, we've all had these moments in our lives where we're like, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you hiding from me? Well, the story of Exodus reminds us that even when God is hidden, he is near. And here's what I mean by this. Egypt, and Pharaoh in particular, are respon- they're, they're the ones responsible for the evil being inflicted upon the Israelites. God's not the author of evil. But God, throughout this story, uses the evil of the Egyptians to bend history into his will. It was Joseph who first said, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And this theme is now playing itself out again in this story in Exodus. And if you notice, everything Pharaoh does that he thinks he's trying to destroy God's people, everything he does actually plays into God's plan. It's amazing. Everything he does, you see in verse 20, that his persecution and enslaving of the people in Israel actually leads to greater bravery, acts of bravery, and greater cultural identity, a greater sense of ethnic solidarity in their lives, because as the, as the people of Israel suffered together, they became unified in their cultural identity. Most scholars would say, and history would tell us, when you take an ethnic minority, put them in a group, and, and put them in a new culture, and culture goes well for them, they will slowly but eventually just blend into the culture they're in. That's what happens. But when there's persecution, when there's torment, the, people, the minority groups will develop a greater sense of identity. They'll band together a greater sense of unity. And by Pharaoh actually persecuting the, the Israelites, he caused them to be more unified and more proud of who they were and more proud of their status as God's chosen people. Remember, God never intended the Israelites, to be in Egypt. He told Abraham that they would have a land of their own, but in prosperity and peace, they stayed in Egypt because it was comfortable. But now that they're in slavery, it gave them the desire to step into the plans that God had for them. Secondly, by threatening the males, it led to Moses, an Israelite Israelite child by birth, being put into a basket, pushed down the river, and adopted into Pharaoh's household. That means that this child, Moses, who is a Hebrew, would grow up with an Egyptian education, would grow up with Egyptian warfare training, would grow up with all access to power and privilege, and all these things are things that Moses would eventually use and will eventually use to liberate God's people. Because he was raised in an Egyptian household, he was able to liberate the Hebrews from the Egyptian terror. Third, and this is my favorite because it's such irony, notice that Pharaoh wasn't threatened by women. He said, kill the males. 
Kill all the males. Why? He didn't see the women as a threat. He thought if the males grow up, they can be warriors, they can defeat us. But women, eh, it's just women. Just kill the men. Don't worry about the women. They can be easily controlled. They can be used as house servants or perhaps even worse. They're just women, he thought. But yet in this story, Shipra, Pua, Moses' mother, Moses' biological sister, Pharaoh's own daughter, no less in this story than five women were used by God to thwart the plans of an evil tyrant king. Every move Pharaoh makes, God twists it to do the very opposite than he intended. God seemed hidden to the Israelites, but in reality, in reality he was setting the stage for the great redemption story. I told this story earlier this year, but in 1950, Mao Zedong came to power in China. Mao's the most evil man to ever walk this planet. He's responsible for the death of 78 million people. To put in perspective, Hitler is responsible for 17 million. Pol Pot is responsible for 1.7 million. Mao killed over 78 million people. And when Mao came to power in China, there were less than a million Christians. 1950, less than a million Christians in China, in all of China. And in 1950, at Mao's orders, he said, we don't, I want to stamp out Christianity in China. And at his orders, all the Christians were dehumanized, they were suppressed, they were oppressed. No more missionaries, no more churches, nothing. And by Mao's estimation, he said that Christianity would be wiped away from China within a generation. And there was persecution, there was torture, there was all sorts of uh, killing and evil, evil, evil stuff. And what looked like a hopeless situation for Christians was actually the beginning of a revival in China. Many of the very things that Mao did to suppress Christianity are the very things that led to its growth. Mao, as part of communist China, he developed a road system. He said, I want to develop a road system so he could get around China and China could be connected and so they could have better authority and watching eyes over China. And now, because there was a road system, what once took missionaries months and months and months to travel over terrain to various villages, now only took a few days. And missionaries were able to travel more quickly to other villages and Christianity was able to spread. Mao thought he was going to spread communism by putting roads all over China. He spread Christianity. China was once, once consisted of hundreds of languages and thousands of dialects. But Mao, in 1950, ordered that all public conversation had to be in Mandarin, which meant that every person in China had to learn Mandarin. And now, having a universal language made it not only easier to preach the gospel for the churches in China, but Bible translators for years had been perplexed at how to translate a Bible for China because there were so many languages and so many dialects. But now that everyone knew Mandarin, now Bible translators could make, put a Bible in Mandarin and, it, and through the roads could be disseminated to people all over China. Then Mao ordered that everyone in China learn how to read. What was once a country of only 6% literacy is now a, a country of 98% literacy. So those roads that were able to get to the those roads were able to take Bibles to people because they were now spoke one language and now because they were commanded to learn how to read now they knew how to read their Bibles. And today, 2019, after being suppressed and oppressed for 70 years, Christianity has grown from less than 1 million people in 1950 to well over 100 million today. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. When it looked like God was in hiding, 
that was when he was doing his greatest work. And I want you to be encouraged by that this morning. Because you may feel like God has abandoned you. And you may feel like he is hiding his face from you. Why do I not have these things that everyone else has? Why am I suffering the things that I'm struggling with? Why why does God seem to bless other people but yet hide his face from me? Whatever your struggle is this morning, whether it's addiction, depression, loneliness, abuse, sickness, fear, grief, loss, poverty, unmet desires, I know, I know that God feels hidden in your story right now. But the story of Exodus and the entire story of the Bible shows us that it is in the moments where God seems most absent where He is doing His most redemptive work. And in our story, Moses' mother puts Moses in the river, the very river where babies were being drowned. The very river where babies were being murdered is where she placed him in a basket and put him to go through those waters. Moses passed through the very waters of death, but he was pulled out into a new life. That's a resurrection story. What looked like a hopeless situation, God was beginning his redemptive work. And Moses, spoiler alert, we're going to study this book for the next several months, but I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. They get out of Egypt. And Moses is the one that leads them out of that. See, when God seemed hidden, when it looked like God was absent, God was cultivating and shaping the story so that a liberator would rise up and would free the people from their slavery and free them to worship. When God seems hidden, God is near. And there is nowhere in all of history where that truth is more evident than in the life and in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the innocent one, far more innocent than the Israelites, He was blamed for problems he didn't cause. He was dehumanized. He was shamed, mocked, beaten, tortured, and put to death. This was the peak of injustice in human history. And if God has ever seemed hidden or absent or aloof in human history, it was in this moment. Even Jesus asked, my God, why have you forsaken me? It felt hopeless. Mary, the disciples, you have to believe that when Jesus exhaled his final breath into death, they probably thought that God had failed them and that he was hiding from them. But it was through the cross that Jesus was able to defeat death by rising from the grave. There could be no victory over death without first the pain of the cross. God could not show his face in glory at the resurrection without first hiding it at the cross. And when Pharaoh named, when Pharaoh's daughter named this child Moses, it says, the scripture tells us what it means. It means out of the water. And she didn't realize it, but she was foreshadowing what would become of Moses' life. He would lead the people of Israel through the Red Sea. He would lead them out of the water into a new life where they could worship. But that doesn't just foreshadow Moses' life, does it? Who else came up out of the water? Who else does that point to? It points to the greater Redeemer who would come, Jesus, who would pass through the waters of death for us, but be raised to new life. 
so that he could free us from sin, death, and Satan and free us from our struggles so that we could be free to worship. Because of Christ, we can know that even our most difficult struggles do not have the final word over our lives because through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has delivered us from sin, sickness, Satan, and death. And no matter what pain you experience today, and we all experience pain, we can have freedom to worship God this morning, even amidst our struggles and amidst our pain, because we know that our struggle is not all that there is. We know that even when God is hidden, He is near. This story tells us so, and the cross tells us so. And we know through the testimony of the Bible that God is working out our salvation and our deliverance. And so whatever you are struggling with today, know that when God is hidden, He is near. And even though you have a struggle in this life, because you know that God is near, you can be free to worship. Let's pray. God, thank you for the cross and for the resurrection. Thank you for the Exodus story, and thank you for all the Exodus stories in this room. All the people in this story who could stand up and say, I once was in slavery, I once was in death, but God, you have given me life and you have made me free to worship. God, I pray that that would be us today, that we would not lose heart when it seems like you're hiding from us, when we would not lose heart when we're living in the midst of the struggle, but God, that we would look up to the cross and the resurrection and know that these earthly afflictions, momentary, they're light and momentary when compared to the weight of glory that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. It may feel like you're hiding for a moment, but we know that life comes in the morning and worship comes in the morning. So God, today as we stand and we sing and we take communion, God, that we be reminded that when you seem hidden, you are near to us. And I pray that that would give us freedom to worship and sing this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.